So folks, this is Stephen Tan, who's come to speak to us today, and I'm just going to have a chat to him for a minute. There's one obvious thing I need to ask of him, the tie, mate. Who chose that? <laughs> <laughs> Myself, mate. You, you chose it yourself. Yeah. And the socks. We love the socks. Come socks on, pull, pull as the, well. Come on, pull. Yeah. Yeah. We've got the blue socks with the orange the things on. Socks. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come and speak to Stephen about that later on. Yeah. We can minister to him, pray for him down here. We've got Bronwyn and Steve. Just fantastic. Hey, welcome uh, this morning, mate. Just a couple of things. Tell us about your family. Um, okay, cool. So uh, my name's Stephen. I um, was actually, uh, I was born and raised in Malaysia. Uh, I'm, I'm a son of a Baptist pastor, and I am myself now also a Baptist pastor. Uh, my, I'm married to Callie, who hails from um, uh, country New South Wales, just across the Murray. Uh, right next to Mildura um, and we have a young son called Austin he's about to turn 14 months wow. and also a fluffy dog <laughs> uh, Japanese spits yeah my wife would kill me if I forgot to mention that but does the uh, dog have a name? Cloud is her name Cloud because it looks she's... like a cloud? yeah white oh, and fluffy okay. That's, there you go, there you go. Yeah. tell us about your church Stephen um, so I uh, we, we planted the church uh, in, in the city of Monash in Clayton called Regeneration Church, and we, uh, we started off mid-2017, so July 2017, um, sent out by another uh, Baptist church, uh, Mentor and Baptist, and with a vision to, uh, to, to uh, a two-fold vision, one to reach the university, we're right next to Monash University, about 250 meters from it, um, but also to be a church that makes disciples of all nations, so um, wanting to welcome um, people who've migrated to Australia, like myself, to be a place of welcome, that anyone uh, can, can come and be, be welcomed and hear the gospel and, and hopefully um, uh, to, to, to accept Christ as their Lord and Saviour as well. Yeah. So what about your own personal story, mate? Uh, how you became yeah. a Christian? Was yeah, it, yeah. As a young kid, as a teenager, sure, last, sure. last week sometime? How are we doing there? <laughs> sure, sure. So, my, um, so I said my dad is, uh, uh, still is a pastor uh, so I grew up in in um, in, in church. Um, I used to say I, I, I preferred Sunday school to normal school because I was better at it. Like I got a, I got a hundred percent on all the quizzes because yeah yeah no it's because he bought me Bible comics. That's the key to success. So every day I'm reading Bible comics at home um, next to Spider Man and all the other stuff. But um, um, but but I actually lost my mom to cancer when I was very young. So I was um, seven years old when my mom passed away and so uh, as a young boy I was faced with the question of mortality um, and, and it's not even as a young boy you know your mom's not meant to die um, before your grandparents for example so um, faced with mortality and I was, I was forced to consider all these stories we read about in the Bible are they, are they true stories how does that impact our life and I realized I think when I was nine I was at a kids camp and it made sense to me for the first time why Jesus had to come. He came, um, he who is God himself, came, put on human flesh, live in this, uh, on, in this broken world um, to, to die on the cross and rise again uh, to defeat our greatest enemies, which is not the coronavirus, but rather sin and death. And he, he did that for my mom, and I realized that he'd also done that for me. And so um, that was when I put my faith in Christ. And and yeah, from a young age, I always wanted to share with others the same gospel that um, I received. Yeah. That's wonderful. Um, I'm going to pray for Stephen. Just before I do, I must uh, mention uh, a lot of people would know um, John Messer. Uh, John uh, passed away uh, 
fairly suddenly, uh, but very peacefully as well too. So for those of you who knew him, a very godly man, a wonderful man. I can still see him preaching here many, many, many years ago. A man of God who is now uh, with his Lord too. So we're thankful uh, for that. Let's pray. Let's, uh, Stephen, I want to give you the Lord so that we can hear from him today. So let, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful thing that um, you have saved Stephen and that you have given him a life that is to serve you as a pastor of your church. We pray for his church, Lord God, for those who walk in through those doors that they might hear about Jesus and they might realise their need for him, Lord God, because of their sin and turn to him and receive eternal life through Christ. Father, we thank you for the words that are going to come from him today. We thank you for his preparation, Lord God, but we thank you for the Holy Spirit that will teach us and that your word, that as we open it and as we read it, it's you speaking directly to us, Father. We love you. We want to serve you, Lord God. We want to learn more of you. So be with your servant this morning as he speaks in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Steve. So a very good morning to everyone. Um, I just want to say, uh, start off by saying uh, thanks to Shabu for inviting me. Thanks to John and to all the elders uh, and to all of you, really, for having me here to uh, preach God's word uh, to you. It's a great honor for me to be here. I was telling Shabu before, I've never been to Kilsyth before, but today I have explored new, new um, realms and new parts of Melbourne. Um, and, and so uh, we are, uh, uh, I forgot to say before, we are a city-to-city church. Uh, so that's a, a church planting organization that I'm sure you know Shabu uh, works for one day a week. So in, in that respect, Shabu is uh, my fearless leader. Uh, and so I get to hang, hang out with him from time to time. Um, so, uh, so yeah, we, we also very much about starting more churches. And that's how we believe um, that we're going to transform Victoria, Australia um, for, for, for Christ. And so we, we're now even thinking about, now that we've planted a church, we're about two and a half years in, what's the next step for us? Can we be planting um, another church? So today, we, um, I'm going to bring you a sermon from 1 Samuel chapter 7. So I just ask that you would uh, open to 1 Samuel 7. Um, I'm told by Shabu, the, the regular translation is ESV. Um, so I'll, I'll, be, I'll be referring to the passage as we go uh, along. I'll be reading out sections as we go along um, and... And I ask that you would refer to the scriptures as I preach from it. I'm just going to pray quickly as well. Uh, Gracious Father, we ask that you would speak to us today. Father, would you be pleased to use me as your mouthpiece? Just as John the Baptist prayed, may I decrease so that Christ might increase. Father, I pray for every person here, every heart here, that we would be open to what the Spirit is saying to us today. And let no person leave this service unchanged by your word. Do this for your own namesake, in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been too long since my last confession. These are the opening words uh, of the Netflix series Daredevil. 
which is, next slide please, uh, about a blind hero who has his other four senses enhanced and he fights crime in Hell's Kitchen, New York. Um, and so Daredevil, which, ba- which is based on a Marvel comic, is one of the only shows, I think, that I've seen recently that takes faith seriously. Uh, Daredevil's alter ego is lawyer Matt Murdock. And the opening scene has Matt, who is a Catholic, enter the confession booth. And Matt begins to tell the priest, uh, Father Lantham, about his late father, who was a great boxer. So Matt says... He got the devil in him. And you'd see it sometimes in the ring. His eyes would go dead and he'd start walking forward real slow, hands at his sides like he wasn't afraid of anything. And the other guy, he'd see that look and he'd try to get away from him. But now my dad, he'd catch him and trap him in a corner. Let the devil out. Yeah, now I didn't understand it. You know what he was feeling deep inside. I didn't understand it, not back then. Father Lantham says, but you understand it now? Perhaps this would be easier if you tell me what you've done. And Matt says, I'm not seeking penance for what I've done, Father. I'm asking forgiveness for what I'm about to do. Father Lantham says, well, that's not how this works. What exactly are you about to do? And Matt doesn't respond and the scene ends. Well, that's not how this works, right? Surely you can't confess your sins before you commit them. Even if the sin is to fight crime by violently beating up criminals in a form of vigilante justice. So how does repentance work? And this is an important question for us today. For we cannot truly understand the gospel without understanding repentance. And thankfully, what we have in 1 Samuel 7 is an amazing picture of what repentance looks like. We see the prophet Samuel take on the mantle of leadership for God's people, uh, Israel. And what we see in this story is a picture of the gospel according to Samuel. And my prayer is that through this sermon, you would really grasp the meaning of the gospel and its implications for us today. So I think if we want to understand the gospel, there are three things that we must understand. And we're going to explore this in this uh, story And these are the three things. One is idolatry, the sin beneath the sin. Two, repentance, the right response to the gospel. And three, mediator, the one who saves us. But we begin with idolatry, the sin beneath the sin. I ask you to turn now to, I'll be reading from verse 1 of 1 Samuel 7. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And so the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. 
So 20 years had passed since the miracle of the Ark of God returning to Israelite territory. Now we're not told what happened during these 20 years or what caused this to happen, but at the end of these 20 years, something shifted in the hearts of the Israelites and all of Israel lamented after the Lord. Um, uh, the, the CSB translation which I use says all of Israel longed for the Lord. All of Israel realized that as a nation, they had collectively turned away from the Lord to worship foreign gods. And we see here the names Baal and Ashtaroth, but we see them in the plural. Baals and Ashtaroths. And while, while there was a, a Canaanite goddess called Ashtaroth, uh, who was a goddess of fertility and warfare, the word Ashtaroth could refer also to goddesses more broadly. So Samuel is basically saying, Hey Israel, get rid of the foreign gods and goddesses. Same thing goes for Baal, right? Well, the term Baal eventually was used to refer to a storm and fertility god, also called Hadad. But for the most part, Baal is just a general term which refers to a god or an idol. The word Baal in Hebrew actually means lord or owner. And so Israel had turned away from the true lord and were instead worshipping false lords. And so Israel's sin was idol Worship, right? Instead of worshiping the Lord, they prefer to bow down to Baals and to Ashtoreths made of wood and stone. Now, I think it's reasonable to think that Israel was guilty of a whole lot of other sins stealing, lying, adultery, right? sins that are common to every people group in history. But God wasn't concerned so much about those sins as he was for idol worship. To him, that was the primary sin of his people. So what about for us today? What is our great sin here in Melbourne, Australia? Is it domestic violence? Is it abortion? Is it mistreatment of refugees on Manus and Nauru? Is it legalizing same-sex marriage? Is it lust? Is it greed? Is it people punching each other to get toilet paper? It's an outworking of greed, isn't it? Is it jealousy? No, our great sin is exactly the same as the Israelites. Our great sin is idolatry. Now you might say to me at this point, Stephen, are you for real? I do not have a Baal in my living room that I bow down to. I do not have an Ashtoreth in, in my, at my bedside table that I look, pray to before I fall asleep. So how is it that we actually commit idolatry? You see, idolatry is the sin beneath 
the sin. The sin beneath the sin. Now, there are many sins that we commit which are fruit, but there's always an idol behind the sin, which is the root. Um, go to the next slide. That was short. Yep. Now, let me give you a, a real-life example. So a few months ago, I lost my temper. I had what the Bible calls a fit of rage. Now, I wasn't um, angry at any particular person. I was angry with my computer. You see, Windows had done one of its scheduled updates while I was having dinner. And so I thought, okay, you know what, I'll just... I'll have dinner. I've been working uh, on my sermon all day. And so, all right, schedule updates. I'll just have my dinner and I'll come back and I'll keep working, right? But when I came back from dinner, the updates had finished. To my shock and horror, my sermon had disappeared. Now, it's never happened to me before. This is the only time it's ever happened. I was already feeling really tired and stressed from lots of other things. And I reached a breaking point so much so that I began to shout at my computer. Now, what was my sin? Now, on the surface, it's easy to see. I had a fit of rage, right? It's not very pretty. But that's not my real problem. Well, part of my problem, I think, is that in years past, I rationalized my anger when technology uh, failed me by saying, look, this computer, it's an inanimate object, right? It has no feelings. Um, so I can shout at it, it won't be offended. But the problem is that anger is not pleasant for people around you who witness it. Right? Even if they're not the ones being um, scolded. You can ask my wife about this. But ultimately, I think I had le- at least two idols that were behind my fit of rage. Now, the first idol was the idol of a perfect sermon. You see, I, I love preaching, and what that means is that I always want to preach a perfect sermon. And unfortunately, that's not really achievable unless your name is Jesus Christ. And also, that means that I hate preaching bad sermons. So Windows, who had never done this to me before, this has been my loyal aide for 20 years, had just ruined my perfect sermon. And my second idol is consumerism. I've grown up in a culture where I am taught that the customer is always right. And I also studied marketing before I became a pastor. If my service provider or my product fails me, I have a right to be angry with them. I am the sovereign consumer. I have paid good money for this computer. And so the computer had better serve me and and do what I paid it to do. I'm not being unreasonable, right? All I want is for you to not delete my work. Is that so hard? The fruit of my anger revealed to me what was actually going on in the root. Because it wasn't Christ that I was worshipping then as I was trying to write my sermon. It was myself. Me and my pet idols of a perfect sermon and a perfect computer. But you see, every sin that we encounter in this world is a result of idolatry. Every sin that we witness in this world is a result of misdirected worship. We sin because we worship something or someone else other than the living God. 
So if I asked you today, what idols do you struggle with? Do you know the answer? What shape does the Baal and the Ashtoreth take in your heart? Well, maybe you came today to church today lacking sleep. Why were you lacking sleep? I mean, for some people, it might be a very legitimate reason. Maybe they had a, a, a nursing infant to nurse all night long. But maybe it's because you were working too hard on your assignment. You want to have that perfect assignment, like I wanted to have that perfect sermon, right? You, you need to have that perfect grade of high distinction to get that, that, that GPA that you, you need. Maybe you sang the songs today, but your heart wasn't really in it because you were thinking of someone else. Some guy or girl, and you're just wondering if they think the same way about you. Or maybe you haven't actually been reading your Bible or, or praying or coming to church because you have just too much work to do and you can't not do the work. The New Testament has a Greek word that is very helpful for us to understand idolatry. I want to read 1 John 2.16 for us. It says, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, the word lust here doesn't mean sexual lust. It's the Greek word uh, epithumia, which can be translated as over-desire. You see, idolatry is not just desiring something sinful, like uh, you know, lusting after another man's wife or another woman's husband. That's something that's clearly sinful, right? And is idolatry. But idolatry is also desiring good things too much. Over-desire. Is it good to desire a high distinction on your assignment? Yes. There is nothing wrong with that. All the Asian moms and dads are right. <laughs> but where all the Asian moms and dads are wrong is when they ask you to get a HD at any cost. When getting a HD is necessary to getting their love and acceptance. When getting a HD is more important than, than going to church or to reading the Bible or to prayer. When do we commit idolatry? It is when we desire something too much. When we desire something or someone more than we desire God. The great reformer John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. And so it's our job as Christians to regularly take out our spiritual sledgehammer and smash those idols or we will be led into all manner of sins. Okay, so we know what idolatry is. Now let's try and understand repentance, the right response to the gospel. 
So I started the sermon by asking the question, how does repentance work? Um, There's a theologian called Mark Botta. He did a study on the theme of repentance throughout the whole Bible, and he wrote a biblical theology on the theme of repentance. And he identifies three components that are consistent throughout the Bible. And these, uh, these are what they are. The affective, the behavioral, and the verbal and ritual. I'll explain what that means in a second. And I'll also show how these components are all present in this story. So firstly, the effective. What do I mean by the affective? Now, affective means a change in internal orientation. Affective means a change in heart desire. And this is what it says in verse 2, right? In the, in the Christian Standard Bible, it says, Then the whole house of Israel longed for the Lord. What changed? The hearts of the people changed. They no longer longed for the Baals, and they no longer desired the Ashtaroths. Instead, they longed for the Lord. Where does the change begin? It begins in the heart. The great Anglican Thomas Cranmer said, What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Say that again. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. What happens every time we commit idolatry and fall into sin? We love something, right, other than God. And we choose to act sinfully in pursuit of it, the will. And then we justify our actions to appease our guilty conscience. But the same is true of repentance. True repentance begins when our heart begins to desire God. The second is the behavioral. This one's pretty obvious. We can't just say that we're sorry. We need to actually do something about it. There has to be an actual change in lifestyle or patterns of living. Now notice what Samuel says in verse 3 in response to the Israelites longing after God. Now he doesn't then say to them, Hey, good on you, Israelites. I applaud your desire. Good job. Well done. No, he says, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, get rid of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and dedicate yourself to the Lord and worship Him only. Only then will God save you from the Philistines. So in other words, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, if you are truly repenting, prove it, destroy your idols. And that's what the Israelites did. There are also uh, usually verbal or ritual forms of repentance. And this includes oral declarations of desire to repent, whether in prayer or speech, including admission of sin and culpability. And there are also various rituals that we see throughout the Bible, like uh, sacrifices, fasting, sackcloth, and in the New Testament, baptism. So take a look at what the Israelites do in verse 5 in your Bibles. 
Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now notice how the Israelites partook in communal rituals of fasting and pouring water to express repentance to the Lord. And notice also the verbal component. When they confess, we have sinned against the Lord. What is the gospel? Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. To be a Christian, all you have to do is to believe in Jesus. Is that correct? Is that the gospel? Now, I've heard many preachers preach that in many large churches across Melbourne and around the world. And every time I hear that, I'm disappointed, sometimes frustrated and even angry. Why? Because something is missing. What's missing? What's the missing piece? It's repentance. The gospel must first begin with bad news. And the bad news is that we are all idol worshippers. We have all bowed down and worshipped idols instead of the true and living God. Instead of worshipping the creator God, we have worshipped created things, including ourselves. And the right response to the gospel is repentance. The right response is to turn away from idols to worship the true and living God. But sad reality is that there are many modern gospel presentations that leave out this crucial component. You see, the right response to the gospel cannot just be faith. It must include repentance. What does Jesus himself say in Mark 1.15? The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, I love to share the gospel with uh, non-Christians. And one of the most common things I hear is this. I'm not sure if I want to become a Christian. And I say, why? And they might say, usually, well, it seems too easy if all you have to do is believe. It means someone can do really evil things, and just before they die, he can choose to believe in Jesus and go to heaven. Or they might say something like, hey, you know, I know this guy in my work. He says he's a Christian, but he loves to get drunk and to go to strip clubs. I don't understand how he can go to church on a Sunday and do these things. So what's the problem here? The problem is that too many preachers preach a gospel of cheap grace, a gospel of faith without repentance, a gospel of grace without the law. A gospel of forgiveness without holiness. A gospel of conversion without discipleship. And so a right understanding of repentance protects us from these false gospels. Now on on one hand, we have the gospel of cheap grace. But on the other hand, we also have this other gospel of works righteousness. The gospel of works righteousness is Jesus plus 
anything, right? Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus sacraments, Jesus plus Mary, Jesus plus serving the poor, Jesus plus speaking in tongues, Jesus plus signs and wonders or healing, Jesus plus even Reformed theology. Repentance is a change in affections, behavior, and verbal confession. Repentance is a change of our heart, our actions, and our declaration of who Jesus is to us. But none of these actions are in themselves necessary to earn God's salvation. Tim Keller has this great statement about the gospel versus religion, uh, by which he means this idea of works righteousness. Religion or works righteousness says, I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. But the gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. Works righteousness says, I serve the poor, therefore I am forgiven. The gospel says, I am forgiven, therefore I serve the poor. Works righteousness says, I obey Jesus' command to be baptized, therefore I am saved. And the gospel says, I am saved, therefore I obey Jesus' command to be baptized. Getting the order right determines whether or not we've understood the gospel. We do good works not to earn God's love for us. We do good works because we know that God already loves us. So a right understanding of repentance helps us to reject two false gospels of cheap grace, but also works righteousness. But there is one more false gospel I want to highlight. So let me ask a question specifically to Christians here today. How many times must we repent? One or many? Now there are some preachers today who, who will tell you that you only have to repent once. Um, Joseph Prince from a New Creation Church in Singapore says that a Christian only needs to repent once uh, upon conversion. And after that, a Christian no longer needs to confess their sins. Instead, they need to confess their righteousness. They should declare that I am holy, I am righteous, I am blessed. But let me tell you about another preacher, a German by the name of Martin Luther the father of the Protestant Reformation. And he taught that all of life is repentance. And Luther began his famous 95 Theses with this statement. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And this is what the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 1. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. So friends, let us reject this gospel of um, what you could call hyper-grace, which says that Christians no longer need to repent and confess their sins. 
Mark Borda says that repentance is key at the outset of Christian experience with God, but it is also part of an enduring spiritual rhythm of life with the triune God. J.I. Packer says that we need to develop habitual repentance, which is the forming and retaining of a conscious habit of repenting as often as we need to. And that, of course, means usually, for most of us, every day of our lives. The Christian life is a journey of transformation. No, no Christian is perfect. But every genuine Christian is being perfected day by day. And this is what we call progressive sanctification. Each Christian is being transformed by the Father into the image of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what's our role in our transformation? What's our role in our progressive uh, sanctification? It's repentance. Habitual repentance. Until the day that we see Jesus face to face. Okay, so we have idolatry and we have repentance. And we need one more component today to grasp the gospel, and that is the mediator, the one who saves us. So turn with me again to to your Bibles from verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And so Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth So the Philistines prepared their army. They marched into battle. Israel's worst fears, their worst fears were coming true. And what did these Israelites do? They turned to Samuel to be their mediator. And they say, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And then what does Samuel do as the mediator? He takes a young lamb, right? He offers it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And he cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel and the Lord answered him. So is repentance enough? Is repentance the only component necessary for salvation? The Israelites knew that it wasn't enough. They needed a mediator and they needed a sacrifice. Now as a pastor, there are times when you are required to serve as a mediator. There was once Uh, This couple I knew got into a serious argument with each other over something that happened uh, publicly, which I happened to witness. 
And because I knew both of them, I offered to be a mediator in their conflict, and they accepted. Now, part of the conflict was a misunderstanding based on cultural difference. One of them was Western, right, an Aussie, and one was Eastern, a Chinese. Now, as a Malaysian Chinese, I'm culturally Eastern, but by God's grace, I also have a good grasp of Western culture. And as I say, thanks to my wife, I learn more about Aussie culture every day. And now, thankfully, I was able to diffuse this conflict by explaining the cultural difference and the relationship was restored. But to be a good mediator, you must be able to faithfully represent both parties. And in this case, Samuel was able to represent Israel before the Lord, but also the Lord before Israel. A mediator was necessary, but so was a sacrifice. Now, in one of the world's biggest financial scandals, former Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak is on trial. Uh, actually, his trial has been suspended recently, but he, next slide, he's been on trial for stealing 7.5 billion US dollars from Malaysians through the 1MDB fund. Um, uh, and on 17 of January, David Solomon, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, one of the world's biggest financial uh, investment banks, publicly apologized to all Malaysians for the involvement of its former banker, Tim Leisner, in the scandal. And Malaysia's finance minister, Lim Guan Eng, at the time, replied with a classic Malaysian saying. He said, Sorry, no cure. Pay back $7.5 billion, and then, and then so that I know that you're actually sorry, right? Sorry, no cure. There must be compensation. A price must be paid. In the same way, you could say the same thing about repentance. Repentance, no cure. There must be a sacrifice, a price. A price must be paid in blood. But thanks to Samuel, the mediator, and the sacrifice of the young lamb, the Lord saves the Israelites and defeats the Philistines. But as good as Samuel is, his mediatorial work is not enough to save us. It does nothing for us, really. And today we face a much greater threat than a Philistine army. We face the judgment of God himself for our, our idolatry. We face death and eternal condemnation that makes coronavirus look pretty minuscule in comparison. And we need an even greater mediator than Samuel and an even greater sacrifice than a young lamb. But because of his great love for us, God sent us his only son, Jesus Christ, to be our mediator. And Jesus is fully God, which means he can fully represent God to us. But Jesus is also fully man, which means he can fully represent us to God. And God sent Jesus to not only be our mediator, but to be our perfect sacrifice. Just as Samuel needed to offer a perfect lamb without blemish as an acceptable sacrifice to God, Jesus is the perfect lamb and able to be an acceptable sacrifice before God the Father.
And while each of us commit idolatry by worshipping Baals and Asherahs, Jesus worshipped only his Father while he was on earth. And while we have committed every sin under the sun, Jesus committed no sin. 1 Peter 2 says, He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, took our sin and our idolatry upon himself when he died on that cross. And so that instead of judgment, we might receive salvation. Instead of condemnation, we might receive forgiveness. This is the good news of the gospel. So do you understand the gospel? Do you see that you are guilty of idolatry, the sin beneath the sin? Do you see that Jesus, the mediator, has bridged our broken relationship with God? Do you see that Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, has paid the price for our sins with his own blood? And do you see that the right response to this gospel is repentance, turning away from longing after idols and instead longing for God? And do you see that the right response is also faith, putting your trust in Jesus as your mediator and sacrificial savior? Now, if you are not a Christian today, Jesus is calling you to repent of idolatry and put your trust in him as mediator and sacrificial savior. You can become a Christian even today. I encourage you to talk to Shabu, John, one of the elders, myself. If you are a Christian, let me encourage you, repent once again of your sins of the past week and then joyfully receive Christ's forgiveness in the gospel once again. Let's do that now. I'll pray for us as we do that. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story, this narrative that's preserved for us in the book of 1 Samuel that shows us what our real problem is, what our real sin is, the sin underneath the sin, and that is actually idolatry. So Father, convict us in our hearts of the ways where we have longed after things that are not you, idols, Baals, Ashtoreths, when we, have, when we have justified our idolatry, when we have made excuses for our idolatry, when we have treated our sins lightly, forgive us, O oh God, and convict us of sin. But Father, help us to see the importance of repenting, not just once, but practicing habitual repentance, a lifestyle of repentance. So Father, We confess our sins to you today. But Father, we know 
that Christ Jesus, Son of God, who loved us, gave himself for us, died and rose again, is our perfect mediator and our sacrifice. And that because of his blood shed on the cross, we can be forgiven once again. And maybe for some, even for the first time. So Father, we ask, do this work in our hearts. Help us to respond in faith and repentance. Help us to see, behold the wonder, the beauty, the glory of what Christ has done. What an amazing truth. Help us to live out of this reality, even amidst uncertainty with coronavirus and all that. Help us to remember what is truly ultimate. And help us to cling onto the hope that you give us in this gospel. Oh, what a glorious gospel. Teach us by your spirit, oh God, for your namesake, in Christ's strong name. Amen.